Um, very quickly. Um, last week, because we were, we were leaving Shakespeare in the Renaissance, um, or the last couple of weeks, and we moved forward to um, more modern times and a different genre. We're reading a novel instead of plays. Um, and actually moving towards the end of our work. I thought it would be good to just remind everybody of some important principles that have been with us all along. St. Thomas says that the most important thing that we can do with <coughs> our minds is learn to read what is. And I'm trusting everybody will give that some thought. What is to an Islam, a Muslim? What is to somebody who's Jewish? What is to an empiricist? You know, an empiricist thinks that there's nothing more there than what's delivered to our senses. So people will understand what is in different ways. We, we as an incarnational people, should understand that what is present to our senses um, contains what the philosophers would call being. You know, that, that each thing is. Remember when we read The Wind Hover and Hopkins was describing that bird, or um, um, Sch um, Schneckenberg was describing herself as a four-year-old when she pricked herself, remember, and was seeing everything that took place um, at, um, as a reenactment, a participation in the cross. So what is is often multi-level. It should be for us as Catholics. I mean, we, sh we, 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 believe, we believe that we do not get to the divine order, the order of miracles, except through our senses, our bodies. The modern mind has reversed that. After, after Descartes, the whole, modern, the whole modern world lives in its head. Descartes said, we know ideas. That's what we know, clear and distinct ideas in our heads. So the modern world tends to <coughs> tends to be very subjective, very stubborn. It holds on to these ideas and, and it will, people will make their arguments based on that. There's no way, I mean, hard-headed people, there's no way to penetrate that. There's no reference outside the person's head. We believe that we know things. We actually know them, a bird, a tree, um, whatever it is. That whatever is delivered to our senses um, receive some work with the mind. The mind can penetrate things and find a divine order at work. Every one of the works that I can recall, every single one of the works that we've read um, has um, been a work in which the writer faithfully presents the world as it is to us and shows us that something else is going on. Just to give a recent example, in Anthony and Cleopatra, towards the opening of the play, the soothsayer says to Charmian, remember, you will be fairer than you are. She had those four prophecies. That's not an accident. And, and Shakespeare's too bright. He puts that in the beginning of the play, and we know that the, what he prophesizes comes true at the end. By doing that, um, he makes it possible for us to see some divine order has been at work all along, even if we didn't see it. Otherwise, how could they have known? I hope that's clear. Because an inferior writer could have just had a miracle take place in a play. But we would have no way of knowing whether that's an accident or not. You know? I'm really serious about this. This is really serious. 
I was upset with the movie Unplanned, if you've seen it, because the woman goes into this procedure room and at the very end of the movie she discovers something um, and it changes his life. It's a really important scene. But in terms of the movie, it's an accident. It's unplanned. That's a fundamentalist perception of the world. A Catholic would not see it that way. Somebody like Shakespeare does something like put the soothsayers in at the beginning. And, or remember Winter's Tale, when the, when the uh, oracle came back and said, that which is lost, um, Dante's will be without an heir until that which is lost is found. So in the middle of the play, we've got a prophecy, and it, it's fulfilled at the end. There's, there's no way to see that fulfillment without understanding the gods have been along all along. That's a Catholic world. We believe the sacraments are here. We participate in it. It's a part of our world. So when St. Thomas says one of the most important things we can do is see what's there, the question is, do we bring any depth perception or are we just blinded by what our senses present? Are we aware that right now, in this room, something's going on with God? Do we see it? Are we aware of it? How sensitive to it? The poets have been helping us to see prophetically. Prophetically means connecting two points. One point up close, one at a distance. It's that depth perception that makes us aware reality's multi-leveled. There's more going on that's present to our senses. Okay, so what's there is important. <coughs> um, I talked just briefly about the difference between the natural virtues and the supernatural virtues. I'm going to come back to it in a minute when I get to Scarlet Letter. Remember, we're, we're aware, we're called on the basis of natural philosophy. Boethius, Thomas, Augustine, natural philosophy. We are the epics, Homer, Aristotle, Plato, all of them. We are called to practice virtues. That's our call. It's the hardship of learning to make ourselves virtuous. And the four natural virtues are justice, prudence, temperance, fortitude, or courage. We're asked, um, if, we're, we, if we tend to be timid, we've got to ask ourselves to step out to try to show some courage, to not avoid things. If we eat too much or drink too much, you know, um, whatever, have too much sex, want, covet things, you know, if those show the impulses in our life, we're asked to correct them, to moderate ourselves. So in our Catholic tradition, we, we believe that there's frames of reference in nature to help us. If we drink too much, we'll know it. C.S. Lewis has that wonderful line where he says, um, if you drink too much, um, you, you give up the law over yourself and end up obeying the law of gravity. Because when you drink, <laughs> well, right? I mean, you have no, con what, what you do is let a mechanical law take over and we lose our, we lose our free wills because we're stumbling and on the ground. So everybody, that's clear enough, right? So we have frames of reference everywhere in nature. The, the Puritan, the Protestant, Fundamentalist does not, because they believe all nature is corrupt. They have no frames of reference there. We do. We're supposed to practice the natural virtues. We do that believing that every one of those natural virtues will be perfected by a supernatural if we're open to God. If we're open to God. The three supernatural virtues are faith, hope, and charity. Right? And 
the, they, they differ from the natural virtues in one respect. We're asked to have faith when we no longer have a reason for having it. If, if we're getting everything our way and then something happens in, where we don't get our way, some people turn away from the church. That's the reason for leaving it. That's exactly what we're supposed to hold our ground, right? Um, we're supposed to hope when things are hopeless. Otherwise, it's not hope. So exactly when we don't have a reason for hoping, that's when hope is real. Same thing with love. It's much easier to love something when we get our way. It's much harder when we don't. When somebody does something wrong to us, our first impulse is to um, wound or run away. Um, we're asked somehow to hold, hold on to ask of ourselves more because that's what Christ did and we're asked to follow him. So though they're just bringing the two orders to, together, the natural virtues and supernaturals, and you've seen by now, most of you have been here, that you can't go back to that old world. The Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, Plato, Aristotle, St. Thomas, Shakespeare, Chaucer, you can't go back to that world and not find both of those orders present, alive. <coughs> In the modern world, the Protestant world, fundamentalist world, has taken them away because the natural order is depraved. And the science world has taken it away. In place of virtues, we got Freud's polymorphous perverse or an Oedipus complex or you know, something silly like that. The Catholic has to hold on to those things um, because it's an expression of the way we are related to the natural order. We are an incarnational people, but we are a people of God. Faith and reason. Grace perfects nature. I keep, every once in a while I hear a song called Grace is Enough in our church. I'd like to take it to the music director and say, take, you know, well, grace is enough, but it, you know, that, that's a statement that's more appropriate for a fundamentalist because we believe that grace perfects nature. It works on nature. Grace doesn't exist in a vacuum. So we are a universal sacramental church. We are one... Um, the basis of purity, as I've said before, cannot be national or ethnic. It's one. We are one church, um, united in Christ, um, and we're sacramental. Um, the sacraments we understand to be God's way, Christ's way, of performing miracles with us. We take the Eucharist believing that it, it's a divine help to help us to do something we cannot do on our own. That's our faith. So those things have been very present. Now we've entered a, a Protestant world. We're in Scarlet Letter. We, we are distancing ourselves from what we understand to have been the pagan Christian Middle Ages. The pagan world, pre-Christian, and then the Christian Middle Ages. Okay, so here we are today. Is everybody okay? We're in a different world, and it, the amazing thing about it you can thank Suzanne for this too, because I was not going to do Scarlet Letter. Is that it's such a it's such a good introduction into the change? What's what's happened? I, I'm I'm only sorry that we didn't do a Scarlet Letter and Moby Dick together. Part of me wants to go back and do the two of them together because, well, if you did the two of them together, I just think it would blow you away. You know, Melville's dealing with predestination and other things, and Hawthorne in another way. But both of them. 
the friendship was cemented on this principle. They both believed in the brotherhood of sin. They both saw sin as something that binds us together. And they saw that in a world that was denying sin. The modern intellectual secular world was turning away from it. The, the Puritan world that they both grew up in was too dark, forbidding in its treatment of sin. We see that in the predestination that Ahab's struggling with. You know, what a dark, what a dark inhuman theology. I mean, I, I, now that I, whenever I, I mean, I don't read a lot, but when last time we read it together, I thought, you know, everybody, everybody, the critics, modern critics, write books called Melville's Quarrel with God. Melville's Quarrel with God, that he's angry at God. Ahab's a really angry man. There's no way I can read him without thinking, how, how could anybody grow up under that theology and not reach a point of real fury for a human being to be looked at that way? that everything's decided, he has no free will, and he might be among the predestined damned. Who could live under that? It's just, to me, it's disheartening, frightening. It's terrifying. So we're in the modern world. Okay, very quickly. We saw here in Scarlet Letter um, the, um, that um, the the fundamentalist group, the Puritan group that had left England to go to the Netherlands and then here, came united in their beliefs. Um, they all believed in the central importance of faith. Faith alone is what relates to God, and they all believed in Scripture. But they weren't here very long before um, schisms developed, radical divisions. <laughs> and we've talked about that, and I just want to take a minute because I, I think it's amazing and it's um, so important to see. Um, for a number of reasons. Anne Hutchinson um, believed, in, in a way that was consistent with everybody else's belief, that faith was the most important thing. For her, it connected her with the Holy Spirit. She believed that being one with the Holy Spirit elevated her above the, law, the, the laws of it, her social world. But to do that put the laws of the social world um, at risk because the other, the majority of the people there believe that they, they, like Anne, took faith as their guiding principle, but they believe the evidence of that faith was shown in entering the church and conforming with its laws. That was the proof that she was one with Christ in the scripture, in her faith. And that to be dealing with somebody who said she's not bound to those laws, threatened everything the majority did because they're saying it's the conformity of those laws that proves your faith. Everybody's clear on that, right? Yeah or no? Is there a question? Okay. Is there? Okay. Here's the problem. I mean, a number, and it's extraordinary, a number of things here. One is um, that it, 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 it intensified the schism between two groups, black and white. Okay? Because both people believed that every sin was a sign, an emblem. That's Hawthorne's language. He knows that. Every sin is a type of sin. <clears throat> so to enter the church meant you put away those sins and people would be um, gauging, making judgments about your character based on your actions. If you were pious and polite and conformed, it was a sign that you were saved. You're among the saved. If you acted any other way, was a sign that you were not. 
they put, they exile Anne Hutchinson. Hawthorne calls her sainted Anne Hutchinson. Um, and I'm, I think we said this, I'm trusting everybody's seen it. It's impossible to read this book without seeing analogies between Hester, who's outside of that world, and the majority of the Puritans there. So um, it created an allegorical, it invited an allegorical treatment, black and white, that one thing stood for another. So Hester's sin, the emblem on her breast, was a sign of all sins. And if anybody exhibited any signs of sin, they would have been included in her class. That's why pieties and solemnity and the Puritan rigor was so important. Why they're so dark, generally. They had to put that away. Um, it put a tremendous emphasis on conformity. And to two absolutely crucial points. One is um, it created a, a condition of what I'm going to call hypertension. Who can live in a black-white world like that, not afraid that you might be among the damned by anything you do? And Hawthorne's very clear in that because in, those, in that early chapter on Hester you know, and her needle, remember, she sees herself as outside the community, a sinner. She's conscious of that. And everybody else sees her as a sinner and themselves as innocent. But she goes through you know, her daily activities aware that sometimes she'll catch something in a person's eye and um, she sees a sign of something not good. And she begins to wonder if everybody else is in sin. And her response is that to, to think she's losing her faith. That she must be, it's because of some darkness in her that she's projecting it out on others. You, are you falling? So it creates this kind of hyper emotional tension that you're, you, you either conform or you're among the damned and if there are any indications that there's some sin there that you become aware of, it's, it's got to emotionally intensify in you. So more and more she becomes aware as she looks around from the gestures that people make that even though they tend to condemn her, some people, what she, she says she has this sort of magical sympathy with them that they're, they're giving away that there's something there. It begins to change the way she looks at them. And we, over, we know over time it begins to change the way they, they look at her. They start coming to her for solace. Because they, because they do carry sins, they have somebody they can turn to. So it creates this condition of hypertension. Um, you, you exist, you, you live with the sense that you should be some way but there are things going on in you that make you aware that you might, you not, you might not be as good as you think you are. So, the second is because they put, because they're following Christ and they put themselves under the authority of the Bible. Something Anne Hutchinson did it. The whole Puritan group did. Um, it was supposed to strengthen people in a spirit of humility, but it did just the opposite. Just the opposite. Because what they were doing was, because they believed in predestination, that everything they were doing was carrying out the will of God, whatever they did, they did in the spirit of speaking for God. So what it did was magnify the human will. It made it more hard-headed, more self-righteous. Okay, so we're watching a group, the founding group of America, bringing those beliefs and Hawthorne's opening it up for us. In a Catholic world, I mean, go back, in, in this 
Protestant world, the fundamentalist world, you've got black white, the saved and the damned. And in any Catholic world, anybody who's living as Catholic, he should know living at extremes is an indication that something's wrong because we're called where? To a middle. Remember Portia. <coughs> somebody growing up in a Catholic world, if you become aware that you're given to extremes, we know, here's, here's Aristotle's image, if I'm too timid that I don't have the courage to do something, it's his images of a tree. If I'm too timid, I've got to make myself step forward more. Because if you're going to bend that tree, let's say it's here with respect to timidity, let's say. If you're going to bend that tree, you have to go, will going here be enough? No, you know because it's going to spring back. That's your inclination. So to become good in that area, you have to go the other way. You have to really go so that when it does straighten, it comes here. Um, if you're stingy, if you're stingy, what would be a, the good thing for you to do? I mean, we'll learn to be more generous. I mean, whatever the, you know, whatever the condition we're dealing with, that we're aware because it's, it's visible to us by nature. We've got a frame of reference. If we go too far one way, we know that that's not good. We work to go the other way. So we've got a frame of reference in nature. We have grades. We don't live in a black-white world. Each one of us, everyone in this room has a different inclination. So the struggle towards virtue will be different for each one. You can't reduce it to a black-white scheme. Every one of you knows that you've got an inclination towards something, whatever it is. All of us know that. Are you following? So it, it, it made it possible for, for somebody like Shakespeare or Dante, we've done it, to deal with gradations of actions, of behavior, to make judgments that are subtler. And I think more patient, hopefully, because we know it's a struggle to be virtue. And then add to that the supernatural virtues, to love the way Christ did, or to have faith or hope. Um, how much do these Puritans practice hope or faith, even when they make faith everything? You're supposed to have faith when you have every reason not to have faith? Do they have faith in God that Hester's going to be okay? Does Dimsdale? Is everybody clear? We're in a very different world. This is, this is the beginnings of America. It's a Protestant world. And Hawthorne, along with Melville, is... The amazing thing to me is that I think what they're doing is healing it. Remember I've said the, the great poets carry the past with them and, and redeem it as they go? I, I really believe, more than I can tell you that both of them are redeeming that world by faithfully rendering it but bringing a spirit to it that that world lacks. So one of the questions we've got to ask towards the end is what did Hawthorne do? Did he do anything to redeem this world? Because remember in the custom house he said, I can't remember his words, but he identified, he said, I take the shame on myself. Um, one of his earliest ancestors um, was one of the ones who punished the women, or the men, too. And I think I've reminded you of this. To me, it's one of the great ironies of the book. In the last section that we'll read next time, Hester and Pearl are going to go to the forest to wait for Dimsdale because she knows he's returning, and, and um, we'll get to this tonight. She wants to speak with him because she's had an interview with Chillingworth and told him she's not going to keep his secret anymore. She's going to let his identity. She, she is so overcome with shame 
because she's seen what Chillingworth has done to Dimsdale, and she regrets. It's it's another way of showing her sin to herself that she's done something she should have been truthful. She didn't do, deal with the truth, and she's seen the effects of it. They're in the forest waiting for Dimsdale, and Dimsdale come. Hester takes off her scarlet letter, tosses it. It's the first time in the book. And it, it's a beautiful scene because for the first time the two of them are united without that, without that sign, that emblem, that type. It's like they're free. I want to look at that because what, I think what Hawthorne does with it is amazing. When Pearl sees that that letter is off her mother's breast, she goes nuts. She's gesticulating, I mean pointing. Hawthorne's description of Pearl matches exactly the descriptions of the women um, who were persecuted because that was evidence <clears throat> that they were witches. So we're, there's that black-white world. If you're not conforming and you show any signs of behavior that you're doing so, then you're among the damned. They were they were executed. Um, I look in that and think this. I mean, one of the ironies, he, author knew it. The witch trials are 50 years off. Pearl will be alive. 50 years down there. She won't be there, we know at the ending she's, she and Hester left and Hester returns, but, but she'll be alive when the witch trials take place. So, um, but something you all know, those of you who've read, something happens at the end to change everybody. Pearl, Hester, Dimsdale. And you've got to read to find out. So, um, let me stop with all of that. I want to get to the, any, Jay, yeah. I, I had a question. One part of the book, I, I didn't quite get what the one, that one woman character who occasionally pops up and says there are these meetings at night. Mistress which, Hibbins? Yeah. yeah. What's the point of that in the story? And is it based on a reality that there, that this Puritan group had some yeah. people who at night went out in the forest to commune with the devil? I mean, what what's the point of that whole in the story. I've got, anybody want to offer a thought on that? <clears throat> if you, you know, my, here, but what I'd like you to do, honestly, because I, I have a feeling you're enjoying this. I'm, I'm. That I, sounds Dionysian, doesn't it? I mean, it's like they, they're going to the forest, and I mean, that image. Di, Dionysus, well, it doesn't go far, hold on. Because okay. I'm so enjoying, you're enjoy, I think you're enjoying. I really am. I mean, I, I have this sense that you're enjoying it. I did, I, you can't imagine the effect that that's having on me. I'm really enjoying it, Jay. Um, it's not Dionysian. It's um, satanic. Dionysius, remember, is um, in the ancient world like a, um, a prefiguration of Christ. Um, but I, I don't want to go there. But... It's satanic. If, if you read the Hawthorne short stories, read a, a story called the Young Goodman Brown. A young Goodman Brown, the minister's back up. Because here's what's going on, Jay, to answer your question directly. Mistress Higgins is a real character. So like John Wilson and the other people, Hawthorne keeps... This is really amazing, because I, I talk now about the difference between a classical realist novel, like Jane Austen, and what in literary terms we'd call a romance, that improbable things go on that make, that make you shake your head and say, this isn't real, which is what all the critics said of Melville and Hawthorne. They didn't like it. So it's Hawthorne's way, like Melville's, of rooting this romance, this 
story with these improbable events taking place in a real world. And he does that. Bellingham, the governors, John Wilson, Higgins, all of them. Higgins is going to be executed 10 years, roughly 10 years from this. It's going to be way before the witch times. So people looked at her as a witch. When Hawthorne brings her in, it's just a reminder. This is amazing. I'm, I'm just, I'm, that he could have done this amazes me. Because what he's doing is showing that actual evil is present in the world. Remember when we looked, I think we looked at the governor's scene when they called Hester there and were thinking about taking Pearl away. And at the very end, she meets Higgins on the way out and says that she expected to see her that night. Which is, it's like John in the Gospel. It's like another way of going into the darkness. Because in that darkness, you're with Satan. And you've entered a... And young Goodman Brown, young Goodman Brown is gonna lose his faith because in this walk to the forest at night, he's gonna be taken into the forest and there he's gonna see every one of the, this is so good, every one of the most reverent people, the functionaries in Salem, they're all involved in a Black Sabbath in a black mass in the forest. So what he's, all he's doing is reminding us that evil is actually present in our world and it's at work. And she's a figure that keeps reminding us of that, but she's also an actual historical figure who will, who will be executed just a few years from this time. The forest, remember, is the unregenerate place. It's, it's the unredeemed, it's the dark place where you go. We, we've got to talk about that at the end when Hester and Dimsdale meet in the forest and Hester takes off her badge because in doing that, I don't want to go there. I'm going to go there just for a second. <laughs> I won't, should I do this? In that moment, the two of them are going to act like they, they can behave as if they don't carry a sin. So in one sense, they become images of the native man without grace. They, they, they've gotten rid of the stigma of this sin. They're free. And let me just leave that, because I want to look at what, because what happens afterwards, to me, is pretty extraordinary. And I'm not going to give that away. But, but you can picture that. You know, a modern, imagine a modern mind saying Christianity is a bunch of hokey, or Islam, or Judaism, or, you know, we don't need that, these, these superstitions about God. They believe that they're fine. They can live in the world and everything will be okay. They're free to do whatever they want. Hawthorne's gonna put Hester and Dimsdale and Pearl in that situation when Hester takes off her badge. Because in that moment, they're returning to their natural innocence. And the question is, are they? And the answer is obvious, not after Eden, not after the fall. We lost that original innocence, so to go back to it and pretend as if we can recover it is just setting us up. You all following? So the forest, it's going to be an interesting place what happens there, but the forest is that place of darkness. It's the unregenerated part of the world. The city, the city on a hill, is the place where man is trying to come out of the forest and build a kingdom to God. Salem, you know where that's going. Jerusalem. It's an image on earth of the new Jerusalem, Salem. So the city is the place where man is redeemed. 
He lives under the theology. One of the things the Puritans have got to do is redeem the savages because the Indians are lost. They're, they are the natural man without grace. So when, when um, Hester and Dimsdale go to the forest and she takes off her badge, in a sense what she's declaring is, we're okay as natural human beings now. We don't need to be reminded of sin. And what happens then? Could the um, Mistress Hibbins be also viewed as like the hypocrisy <coughs> of society? Because her, the governor is her brother, right? Yeah. And she's um, kind of partaking in all of these activities right in his home, and nothing's being done about, they don't really address her. Mm. No. no, 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 no. That's it. No, I mean, I, I happen, I happen to believe pretty strong. I can't. I don't find it fitting in here, and what I can do with this, Shafali. Um, but, um, but I really, it's one of my beliefs that because you already know this, because conformity is um, a sort of assumed principle in this world, that um, a lot of enabling goes on in that world. Um, and you, you just gave me an example. I hadn't thought about that. I, I wouldn't. I myself wouldn't connect it with hypocrisy. Um, but, but, you, but I think what you just said is true. That, that um, she is the sister, and nothing's being done. Um, it's a great irony that that's going on under his roof when he's so, you know, he's so concerned about pearl and and, and religiosity, proprieties, and. To me, it's a really good example of enabling that's hidden. Um, but and you, I guess you could connect it with hypocrisy. I think it's Hawthorne's pretty clear. I think I think your insight there is really good. It's it's he's really clear that she's an, an image of attempting and an evil. That she she identifies herself with the dark man, the black man, and she doesn't. That's why she's going to be executed. In fact, that's going to be actually interesting, a proof that they have come out of enabling. They're going to kill her. Um, and one of, the, one of the lovely things about it is it all seems so innocent and funny. You know, it's comic. Here's this strange woman. If you, if you go back to Plato in the Phaedrus, Plato makes the argument, I think a pretty sound one. He says, um, the argument, it's a book we should have read, but he makes the argument, um, Phaedrus comes outside the city walls. He's just been enamored by the speech of a man named, I think, Lysias, who made the argument, it's wiser to love the non-lover than the lover. Because when you love a lover, the lover causes you nothing but headaches. We all know that from our marriages. <laughs> that marriages are not easy. He's fascinating. What we learn is that Lysias was making that speech to a boy because he was homosexual was trying to get that boy to love him because he'd have no strings attached. He says, why? And he gives all these reasons. Socrates says it's a bad speech and then gives the same speech but rhetorically organizes it better. He's giving the same speech as Lysia. He starts to walk away. It's, a, it's an amazing dialogue. And then he stops and says, I can't do this because I've offended the God of love. So he has to now turn around those first two speeches, Lysias's and his own, which restructured. Show, because what Plato's doing is showing the importance of rhetoric, that you have to organize the speech to make it effective. Socrates goes back and says, 
it's, it's not better to love the non-lover. It's, lo it's better to love the lover. And he gives four forms of love, and one of them is madness. Because love makes available to, to you things that other people don't see. So from the world's perspective, because we know this, I mean, you know, some women go, what is she, of Helena, what does she see in him? Is she nuts? Is she mad? That very often to love another person to some people is mad. It's saying, why is she doing that? Or why is he doing that? How can he love her? You know, it's a form of madness. So in our tradition, the fool, the mad fool, have always been looked at as, Dostoevsky will do this. The mad fool is looked at as a holy person, that that holy person has available insights that other people don't have because they live in a conventionalized world. Everything is flattened out. The holy fool. Is everybody following? But here in New England, that holy fool, because of this black-white thing, is looked at as evil, a type of sin, executed, killed. So this tradition of the holy fool has been with us, going back to Homer, I mean, there, that there are these mad prophets. Cassandra was a prophet in the ancient world at the time of the Iliad. Um, she'll be killed. The holy fool. It's a wonderful argument that madness, love is, it takes, there's four forms of love. One of them is madness and one of them is curing, it's medicinal. One is the love of the beloved. No, it's, so, um, she's, I think she's, and it's interesting to watch him because she's presented so innocently. Remember after the, the governor mansion scene where Hester's leaving and, and we realized that if they had taken away her daughter, she would have lost her faith. She would have joined Tibbins in the forest. She would have given up her faith and that would have been it. So she looks, Hibbins looks innocent, but she's not. Does she deserve execution? I don't think so, but you know, that's, that's that world we're looking at. That's how severe it is. Anybody else? And we'll look at... These are our beginnings. I'm going to go out on a limb here, since this is catechism. I think these elements are in our church always. There's always going to be Catholics who are legalistic, walking around, you know, that Catholics can be just as self-righteous and legalistic because they're going to hold to that thing in that spirit. It's so hard. I, I think, I, I don't know if you've seen the movie um, Man for All Seasons with Thomas More. I just love it because you've got an image of going back to the Renaissance of a man who did everything he could to be virtuous. Everything he could to be virtuous. Huh? We saw that as a class. Here? Yeah. In this very room. That's how bad it's getting. <laughs> anyway, so you know, but you know it, how important, and in our Catholic tradition, who knows that today? Who grows up with any sense of what a good thing virtue is, how hard it is, and how important it is for us to practice it? And who? God. Anyway, I remember Father John Roberts, Roberts one of his talks used the phrase liturgical Nazis <laughs> to these people who just get, you know, that's from a priest. Okay, okay.
And, he, and I think that at the heart of what he was doing, which I thought was so good, if, if, I don't know if any of you were there during this talk, if you, he was doing the book of Ruth and another book, I can't remember which one it was, but the, the whole point for him was how important for us to have magnanimous hearts. What he called hesed, hesed, this, from the Jewish, these large-hearted. And I said this a couple of weeks ago, one of the most important things for educators today is not to develop our heads. I, one of the signs that we still belong in that Puritan past is that we have these enlarged heads. We live in our intellects. We argue, we, you know. The greatest challenge facing us as teachers in, in our culture, John Paul felt that seriously, is helping kids have good hearts. Because if you have a good heart, first principles are gonna to come to you. That's Aristotle's argument. That's Aristotle. Most important thing when kids are young is help them to have good hearts, to have good wills, to learn to love, to have good wills. Because when reason comes, they'll be able to do so much more with it. Produce hard hearts, legalistic hearts, black-white hearts. Kids are going to have a harder time. I think we all know that. No? I think it's the cross of our age. I should stop. Yes. I, isn't it the cross of our no? Isn't it the cross of our age? Would most of you agree? I wouldn't that that these are these are our crosses today. Okay. I'm listening to my wife. <laughs> if I open this, you'd see this big wound. She doesn't like she's doing nothing. Chesterton's got this wonderful line where he says, you know, men pride themselves in going around punching. I mean, if, you know, somebody, all a woman has to do is be quiet, not say anything to you, and the wound is, you can't miss it. The men all know that. The women know it too. Okay, I'll stop. Types, characters, just quick. Hawthorne, insofar he's an allegorist and there's a strong allegorist tendency, is looks at all things as type. Hester's sin is a type of sin. It's, that means it's all sin. Any sin you have is a mark of sin. It puts you in that black-white class. Um, we can look at Hawthorne as a poet because remember um, he's a part of this story and it's important not to forget that. The story comes through him in the Custom House. He finds this packet, is fascinated with it, troubles over it, and then writes this story. So this story is coming out of him. He's a part of it, even though he's communicating. He's more a part of it than Jane Austen in her novels. Because he's located us as a character. He's in the custom house. He's a custom house official, right? Is everybody clear? So in one sense, he's a poet. And I think it's fair to say he's a poet with a prophetic cast. <coughs> he's taking the past and he's, he's been explicit about it. He's trying to redeem it. He's going to do everything he can to take that sin on himself to help. So he's bearing the past with him. That's what this story is. So when we talked about symbolism, and it, it, it doesn't mean what it typically means in a high school. It's the French symbolists are the one who, who gave this a different meaning. It, 
Remember when he says, um, I can do nothing better than hand you this black rose when she comes out of the prison house. He's handing us a rose, and um, that rose is the book. What he's telling us is the book is not a thing, it's a living spirit. He's giving us something living for us to take. So in the same way that Hawthorne takes this package and this cloth and becomes a, participates in that by what he does with it, he's asking us to participate. It's like the work of the Holy Spirit. Here's a book, but it's not something out there. We're taking it in. It's becoming part of us, it's one with our own existence. I'm assuming that's been true in all the works we've done. You guys wouldn't be here that, you know, everyone, when Tom was talking about his amazement at Shakespeare a couple weeks ago, I was thinking, yeah, that that amazement is such a good thing that we read this thing and the world enters us, changes the way we look at things, it changes the way we feel about things. So, so Hawthorne's a type. He's a poet. Hester is a type of woman. She's given to her emotional. She... Um, She's centered in her heart, um, and it's a wounded heart. Dimsdale is masculine. He's a, um, there are those passages in there. I don't want to look at them right now, but it describes Dimsdale as actually, hold on. Um, um, I'm not sure. Let me see, 101. Remember, it describes him as being... Um, a divine um, oh God sorry I'm, it's 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 that passage where it describes Dimsdale as belonging to this class of men very intellectual but um, one of the classes, oh, here on page 118. It starts on 117 where he's describing the men with their intellectual gifts. The bottom of 117, his intellectual gifts, his moral perceptions, his power of experiencing and communicating emotion were kept in a state of preternatural activity by the prick and anguish of his daily life. His fame, though still on its upward slope, already overshadowed the sober reputation of his fellow clergymen. There were scholars among them who'd spent more years in acquiring abstruse lore. We know that intellectuals can live in their heads. And, and in that sense, it's like they live above everybody else. They're in, a, they're in an intellectual world. And tonight, what people, academics would call an ivory tower. You know, they're just... Um, 118 at the top. There were men, too, of sturdier texture. You, we know that most of these men came over from England who were really tough-minded, or they could have never done what they did. Um, go down. There were others, again, true saintly fathers whose faculties have been elaborated by weary toil among their books and by patient thought and etherealized, moreover, by spiritual communication with they are above the world. This intellectual class, this class of church divines, these ministers, all that they lacked, and here's the turn, all that they lacked was the gift that descended upon the chosen disciples at Pentecost in tongues of flame symbolizing, it would seem, not the power of speech in foreign and unknown languages, but that of addressing the whole human brotherhood in the heart's native language. These fathers, otherwise so apostolic, lacked heaven's last and rarest attestation of their office, the tongue of flame. They would have vainly sought 
had they ever dreamed of seeking to express the highest truth through the humblest medium of familiar words and images. Their voices came down afar and indistinctly from the upper heights where they habitually dwell. Not improbably, it was to this latter class of men that Dimsdale, by many of his traits of character, naturally belonged. Is that clear? He distinguishes himself from these other words by his power to use ordinary words um, that would make available what he got to ordinary people. And in that way, he's like the apostles. And I'm going to say he's like Hawthorne, like a poet. Because that's what, I'm trusting all of you felt that when you read this book, you know, Hawthorne's um, writing using ordinary words, but he's taking us into the interior of people all the time and making that interior very real to us as we go through it. So Dimsdale is a type of scholar, a man in his head, in his intellect, but he's distinct from all the other ministers, the theologians in his group, by what Hawthorne's calling these tongues of fire. This is going to be important for those of you who've read the end of the book. You know that the Dimsdale's capacity to speak, and, it, and it's noted a number of times after he after he does this um, midnight vigil, he gave a stirring homily the next day, a sermon. At the end of the book, the book's going to end with him giving the inaugural address. And here, inaugural, new day. Hester's going to say to Pearl, Hawthorne will say, he's a new man. So symbolic, we, we're meant to understand that the old man, Paul's language, the old man is giving way to a new man. Something at the end is happening that's changing this book. And it will come through Dimsdale's sermon. What he does with that sermon is extraordinary. So he belongs, you know, if these are types, what Hawthorne is doing is showing us the human soul. Dimsdale, the head, Hester, the heart. I, these are not rigid alley. I'm just suggesting something to think about here. Chillingworth is an image of the intellect gone bad. He's an image of modern man. The, the man disconnected from any sacred truths. He's the natural man. As the Puritans would look at it, he, he's the natural man incapable of saving himself by his own powers. Because he doesn't turn to God and he's left to his own devices, everything he does becomes evil. He starts out as a really good man. He's earnest, he's serious, he's dedicated, he has a fine mind. Even when he starts to the cure on Dimsdale, he goes into it with good intentions. He doesn't know Dimsdale's the man he's looking for. But once he finds out, um, vengeance takes over, and he just becomes worse and worse and worse. At the end, he's sinister. He's genuinely sinister. So in, in Dimsdale, we're watching, we're being given an image of the modern intellect cut off from grace. If the modern intellect is cut off from grace, its only aim is to destroy. It will always find fault, always find fault. It will debunk, it will tear down. Remember um, Iago in Othello when they arrived at Cyprus and then they're bantering and um, immediately asks for a flattery something and, and he starts flattering them in, a, in an indirectly mean way, he's putting them down. But in that exchange he said, I'm nothing if I'm not critical. <coughs> the tendency of the modern mind is to criticize constantly, to put down, to find fault because it doesn't have the help of grace. 
Lothard's not saying don't make judgments. People always make judgments. The question is, what's the spirit in which you make them? So he's giving us types of the human soul and what happens to them with grace, without. The bearing of sins, the the large part of this falls on Esther until the end um, when Dimsil is going to do something. Okay. I just want to look at a couple things and then stop. I want to call to mind, um, let me see if I can just quickly summarize the middle part of the book. There are eight chapters we were supposed to have. The leech, the leech and his patient, the interior of a heart, the minister's vigil, another view of Hester, Hester and the physician, Hester and Pearl, a forest walk. Those are the chapters. In the leech, um, we're being given a view of Chillingworth and seeing that he's um, getting close to becoming evil. And um, the leech and his patient, the complications are growing because um, it, it's during this period that Chillingworth will discover that Dimsdale is the husband of, or the father of Pearl, and then his vengeance will have an object. In the interior of a heart, Dimsdale, um, we, we see for the first time his great gifts, his tongues of fire, the way he's capable of inspiring a congregation. The following chapter, The Minister's Vigil, is what I believe is the first crisis in a minor key. It's It's a crisis that will build. It's at that point that he wants to go out um, and vicariously take on um, the, the stigma of the Scarlet Letter. You know that he goes out on the scaffolding, but it's at night. He can do it safely. And there's that one scene where it almost terrifies him because he sees this light coming towards him, and it's John Wilson, who's just returning from Winthrop's home, where Winthrop just died. There's another historical figure. Hester and Pearl will come along. I'll, I'm going to look at that in another one. In the next chapter, another view of Hester. Hester's, this is so interesting. She's described as a sister of mercy, and people are beginning to read the A. Now think about importance of interpretations because we've been talking about people read. In the beginning, they saw that A as a clear mark of adultery. Now they're wondering, and they're reading it as able. So we're seeing gradually hearts of people are beginning to change because of the change going on in her that she's performing all these acts. And the, the phrase, Sister of Mercy, is so Catholic. Sister of Mercy. Um, Hester and the physician, it's at this point that Hester goes to Chillingworth to tell him she can't keep the secret anymore. She's going to divulge it to Dimsdale. And you know that she and Pearl are going to go to the forest to wait for him when he's returning from this visit. Um, and a forest walk, it's when Hester and uh, Pearl go to the forest. And it's it, actually, Jay, it, 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 when you read that, you'll, you'll see that it, it's really sort of what Hawthorne's doing. I just think it's sort of amazing. He, the forest is the unregenerate, the, the, the condition of something unregenerate. And, but in that forest, we know if you've read it, that, that Pearl can almost not go anywhere and have the sun land on her. It keeps landing on her. Wherever Hester comes into the picture, the sun disappears. It's a little bit too allegorical for me. I mean, that's, that for me is a, a problem with Hawthorne. But he's attempting to show that, that Hester's carrying this unregenerate 
you know, condition. She has the sin to atone for. Um, I just want to mention a couple of things about um, Hester, and, and then I'd like to focus our last few minutes on Dimsdale. Um, take a look at one, let's see, take a look at 72 and 73. This is, a, we're going back to an earlier scene, but this is the one I mentioned earlier. Page 72 at the bottom. Um, middle of the page, but sometimes once in many days or perchance in many months, she felt an eye, a human eye, upon that ignominious brand that seemed to give a momentary relief as if half of her agony were shared. That she gets these glimpses that give her a sense that somebody else is in sin too, so she's not alone, even though none of the other women can admit or will admit it. Does everybody see that? That's so crucial. That's how, that, it's so depressing. I mean, it's discouraging to watch. That, that conformity is so great that these people are afraid to come out because if they do, it's going to put them in the other class. The next instant, back it all rushed again and still a deeper throb of pain for in that brief interval she had sinned anew, had Hester sinned alone. It's as if she's projecting sin on other people and so recommitting a sin. Is everybody clear? It's just intensifying this. Her imagination was somewhat affected and had she been of a softer moral and intellectual fiber, would have been still more so by the strange and solitary anguish of her life, walking to and fro with those lonely footsteps in the little world with which she was outwardly connected. It now and then appeared to Hester, if altogether fancy, it was nevertheless too potent to be resisted. She felt or fancied then that the scarlet letter endowed her with a new sense. She shuddered to believe, yet could not help believing, that it gave her a sympathetic knowledge of the hidden sin in other hearts. She was terror-stricken by the revelation that were thus made. I, I don't know how you guys are reading this, but this for me is, is one of those passages where it becomes, should become clear to us that Hawthorne is changing this world. Is that clear? In what way? Uh, changing this world in terms of... Uh... She's got this sin. She's been in a situation where, a black-white situation, where the fact that she has the sin disconnects her. She's, she, she's, she keeps being described in terms of this circle of isolation. But she's realizing now, slowly, that the present, the existence of this, her awareness of sins in herself has given her a sympathetic knowledge of other people. So some kind of knowledge is is connecting her with other people. It's By the way, remember my definition of poetry? Maritain. Poetry is a communion between the secret self of the poet and the secret self of things. Hester starting entering into the inner selves of other people. She has the sympathetic knowledge. So that black-white condition is slowly changing. Her, her presence of her own sin and because of these glances or gestures, what's going on, what she sees, makes her aware that people who want to appear to be without sin, they're, they're all in conformity, are actually carrying sins themselves. So there's a slow change taking place. What were they? Could they be other than the insidious? Here, this is, this is so, I mean, imagine it. It's got to be this way. 
Could they be other than the insidious whispers of the bad angel who would fain have persuaded the struggling woman as yet only half his victim, that the outward guise of purity was but a lie, and that if truth were everywhere to be shown, a scarlet letter would blaze forth on many of bosoms beside Hester Prynne? Or must she receive those intimations so obscure yet so distinct as truth? In all her miserable experience, there was nothing else so awful and so loathsome as this sense. It perplexed as well as shocked her by the irreverent inopportuneness of the occasions that brought it into vivid action. Sometimes the red infamy upon her breast would give a sympathetic throb as she passed near a venerable minister or magistrate, the model of piety and justice to whom that age of antique reverence looked up as, as to a mortal man in fellowship with angels. What evil thing is at hand, would Hester say to herself. Then what she's going to do is beat herself up again because she, she's being bad. Is everybody clear? Something's happening. And we know that eventually it's going to bring people to her, largely women, because they, they will find in her <coughs> someone who can help them deal with their own sins. Because so long as they're in this black-white condition, they have no help. They're enclosed in their conform, conformity world. Is she being led out of the cave? Yeah. She's able to see. Yeah, and I don't know how to. I don't even know how to understand lead, but yes. Well, like Hawthorne. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I mean, at, at this point, I, I'm just struggling over the word lead, but her own sense of sin carries a grace with it, and it's helping her become a better person. And it's going to help other people become better person because they're not going to be so self-righteous. They're going to be less afraid to come out, you know, because um, Hester, they see Hester is good. I mean, remember, this is going towards that Abel that night where she's a sister of mercy and people are starting to interpret the A as Abel. Middle of the page, 73. Behold Hester here, a young companion, and looking up she would detect the eyes of a young maiden glancing at the scarlet letter shyly and aside and quickly averted with a faint chill crimson in her cheek as if her purity were somewhat sullied by that momentary glance. O fiend, whose talisman was that fatal symbol, wouldst thou leave nothing, whether in youth or age, for this poor sinner to reveal? Such loss of faith is ever one of the saddest truths results of sin, be it accepted as a proof that all was not corrupt by this poor victim of her own frailty and man's hard law that Hester Prynne yet struggled to believe that no fellow mortal was guilty like herself. So she started assuming that she's in that black class. I mean, she's got the symbol. And gradually, as she begins to have a feeling, it's only a feeling that she's not alone, she begins to feel her, test is, her faith is being tested because it's as if she's projecting and it makes her a worse sinner. So she's in this in-between land. But we're, but we're watching a change take place. Very slowly. On page one, in page 134, um, the bottom of 133, it had even thrown its gleam in the um, sufferer's hard extremity across the verge of time. It has shown him where he set his foot while the light of earth was fast becoming dim and ere the light of futurity could reach him. In such emergencies, Hester's nature showed itself warm and rich, a wellspring of human tenderness, 
Um, she goes everywhere. She, she helps everywhere. It's like she's bringing a light to the world because she has nothing else to do. She's not a part of these things. Here it is again. And I, I, I remember every, every work we've read from the beginning, start with the Iliad. The Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, Dante. There's not a hero that we've encountered, not even Portia or Helena. There's not a hero that we've encountered that wouldn't be seen in modern terms as an anti-hero. They all step outside of the conventional world. Achilles is the first one. He leaves that world. He says, remember when Achilles or Agamemnon takes his honor in the ninth book he says when Agamemnon brings all those gifts, to such honor is a thing I need not. I think I'm honored in Zeus's ordinance. He's suddenly relating himself to a higher order of reality. He's outside that world. Odysseus is outside his. He's going to lose all of his companions. He's going to bring something new to marriage. Odysseus loses his homeland. He's going to keep founding cities, and he's Aeneas. going to constantly fail. Who? Aeneas. Sorry, Aeneas. Yeah? Portia doesn't belong to that Venetian world. Helena is not of the court. That every one of those heroes shows us that there's something in the human being capable of being perfected or realized that puts it at odd with a conventional world that's half blind because it lives that way. And here it is with Hester, you know. Um, she, was, she was put outside that world and it's helped her help that world. He, um, in such emergencies, Hester's nature showed itself warm and rich, a wellspring of human tenderness, unfailing to every real demand and inexhaustible by the largest. Her breast with the badge of shame was but the softer pillow for the head that needed one. People would find a breast on which to lay their heads. She was self-ordained a sister of mercy, page 134. Or we may say, the world's heavy hand had so ordained her when neither the world nor she looked forward to this result. The letter was the symbol of her calling. Such helpfulness was found in her, so much power to do and power to sympathize that many people refused to interpret the scarlet A by its original signification. Remember, everything's a type. People are learning to read differently. Now it's able. So we're, we're being made aware that this, this slow change is taking place. I want to look at um, Dimsdale and then we'll stop. But any questions or comments or observations about anything that's going on? You know that if we look at the... If we look at the plot Remember, the opening problem is the sin and its stigma and grace. This is the central concern of the whole book, the mystery of sin and grace in the human. How do we explain sin as an inherited condition of the fall? And how do we explain God's grace and what he does? And what we're seeing is that in a, in a world, this Puritan world has separated the sinful and and the sinless into groups. Um, those in the church are, are evidence that they live by faith and are putting sins away and anybody outside is in sin. But what we see in the book is grace is actually beginning to work, offer itself, come into this community through a person who's held outside. Um, the earliest complication is um, 
Chillingsworth's visit to Hester, remember the prison? That complicates things terribly because she knows now her husband's there. So remember that the typical plot is opening problem, complication, crisis, denouement, resolution. That's just, so this is the first complication. The other is they're threatening to take away Pearl and she doesn't, and we realized at that point that Hester was facing a crisis, uh, even though it didn't emerge, because if they'd taken her, she would have been lost. And we have another complication here um, with Dimsdale going to the scaffold, and he's almost exposed. So it, I, to me, it's like a crisis in a minor key. We're moving towards a crisis. We're, it's about to come. And what we're going to see is it, it becomes, I think, it's one of the earliest explicit crises um, when um, Chillingworth opens Dimsdale's shirt and he sees the scarlet letter on Dimsdale and he knows that Dimsdale is the person he wants. And, and from that point on, Dimsdale's health is going to um, disappear rapidly and Chim, um, Chillingworth is going to become more and more evil. I mean giving himself to evil. So I want to just take a few minutes to look at Dimsdale and we'll stop. Unless anybody's got questions or anything to say about Hester? Okay, 108. You remember that Chillingworth are, and Dimsdale are rooming together. They're, they're on the upper, they share an upper floor and they have separate rooms. Chillingworth has a laboratory and a room and he's always close to Dimsdale and watches out for him. He's working on these <coughs> plants and trying to extract drugs from them that he thinks will be helpful. And this is a giveaway. I mean, this is where things get a little bit too allegorical for me, but I went away to the bottom. Um, Dimsdale asks where Chillingworth got the, the plants, and he says at the bottom of 108, even in the graveyard here at hand, they are new to me, in, symbolic. They're, <laughs> because this marks the point at which he's going to start using drugs for evil. He's been a good man up until this point. So the fact that they're new is not an accident. Something is going to change. They're new to me. I found them growing on a grave which bore no tombstone, nor the memorial of the dead man, save these ugly weeds that have taken upon themselves to keep him in remembrance. They grew out of his heart and typified. There's that word. It's a type. It's one of Hawthorne's favorite words. It's a type. It may be some hideous secret that was buried with him in which he had done better to confess during his lifetime. So the issue right now that's made explicit... <coughs> <coughs> Sorry, is confession, because that's going to be the subject of the exchange between them. The problem with this man is that he went to his grave unconfessed. <laughs> no name on the tombstone, these dark herbs, as if that fact produced an evil weed that was the product of it, the sign, the sign of it. <coughs> Sorry. Perchance, Dimsdale says, he earnestly desired it, but could not. And wherefore, Chillingworth says, wherefore not, since all the power of nature calls so earnestly for a confession of sin, 
that these black weeds have sprung up out of a buried heart to make them manifest an unspoken crime. That, good sir, is but a fantasy of yours, he says. There can be, if I forebode right, no power short of the divine mercy to disclose whether by uttered words or type or emblem the secrets that may be buried with a human heart. The heart making itself guilty of such secrets must perforce hold them until the day when all hidden things shall be revealed. Nor have I so read or interpreted holy writ as to understand that the disclosure of human thought and deeds then to be made is intended as a part of the retribution. That surely were a shallow view of it. Know these revelations, unless I greatly err, are meant merely to promote the intellectual satisfaction of all intelligent beings who will stand waiting on that day to see the dark problem of this life made plain. <clears throat> Just for a moment, recall Dante, if you would, for a second. Remember when Dante gets to the top of purgatory with, Vir with Virgil and Beatrice has come. So there's not this great display of all of Dante's sins. He's taken into the two rivers. He's taken into Unoe, and all of his sins of bad things are washed away. There's no great display of them. And then he's taken to the other river where all of his memories of good deeds are restored to him. Because we're made to know that nobody can enter heaven carrying his sins with him. Think about the difference between that view, a Catholic view, and a knowledge of men's hearts will be needful to the complete solage of the solution of that problem. And I conceive, moreover, that the hearts holding such miserable secrets as you speak will yield them up in that last day, not with reluctance, but a joy um, unutterable. Go on over. Um, <coughs> Chillingworth has been saying to Dimsdale and comes to a point of asking, he says, have you fully divulged everything that you should to me? Because if I'm to heal you, I won't be able to do it unless I know everything about you. Even the worst things in your heart. Um, um, on page 110, um, in the middle paragraph, Chillingworth says that Men who believe they're going to be relieved of their sins uh, by confession are deceiving themselves. Those sins are going to go with them. Um, on page 111, Chillingworth had by this time approached the window and um, grimly looked down. He's looking at Hester and says, what in heaven's name is she? Is she the imp Is she altogether evil? Has she affections? Has she any discoverable principle of being? Dimsdale, none save the freedom of a broken law. Go down a few lines. Come away, mother, come away, or yonder old black man will catch you. He hath got a hold of the minister already. How often is Chillingworth referred to as the old man? Because remember, Paul is setting the old man against a new, that somebody's been changed by a conversion. Um, Chillingworth is always described as this old man. 112. Chillingworth is saying that unless somebody is completely open about what they've done, he can't heal them. Um, at the bottom of 112, how can you question it, said the mentor. Surely it were child's play to call in a physician and then hide the sore. You would tell me then that I know all, said Chillingworth, deliberately and fixing an eye bright with intense and concentrated intelligence on the minister's face. Be it so, but again, 
He to whom only the outward and physical evil is laid open knoweth oftentimes but half the evil which he's called upon to cure. A bodily disease which we look upon as a whole and entire within itself may, after all, be but a symptom, a sign, of some ailment in the spiritual part. Your pardon, once again, good sir, if my speech give the shadow of offense, you serve all men whom I have known, and he whose body is the closest conjoined and imbued because he's such a, he takes everything so seriously, um, and identified, so to speak, with the spirit wherever it's the instrument. So he's saying, of all people, your body and soul are more closely integrated because everything you do, you take so seriously. Then I need ask no farther, said the clergyman, somewhat hastily rising from his chair. You, you deal not, I take it, in medicine for the soul. Thus a sickness, Chillingworth goes on, a sickness, a sore place, if we may so call it, in your spirit, hath immediately its appropriate manifestation in your bodily frame. Would you, therefore, that your physician heal the bodily evil? How may this be, unless you first lay open to him the wound or trouble in your soul? No, not to thee, not to an earthly physician, cried Dimsdale. Not to thee, but if it, if it be the soul's disease, then do I commit myself to the one physician of the soul. He if, I stand, he, if it stand with his good pleasure, can cure, or he can kill. Let him do with me as, in his justice and wisdom, he shall see good. But who art thou that meddlest in this matter, that dares thrust himself between the sufferer and his God? Um, Dimsdale's going to get so furious, right? he's going to walk out. And then he's going to feel bad at what he does. I'm going to go to the end. Just turn, let's go to the end. 114. <coughs> Dimsdale calms himself because he was furious with Chillingworth. Um, the two are separated. Dimsdale's back in his room. Chillingworth comes in, quietly goes over to the chair. Dimsdale's asleep at the bottom of 114. And a man, so um, he takes away Dimsdale's shirt to look at his chest exposed. Then indeed, Dimsdale shuddered and slightly stirred. After a brief pause, the physician turned away. But with what a wild look of wonder, joy, and horror, with what a ghastly rapture, as it were, too mildly to be expressed only by the eye and features, and therefore bursting forth through the whole ugliness of his figure and making itself even riotously manifest by the extravagant gestures with which he threw his, his arms towards the ceiling, stamped his foot upon the floor. Had a man seen old, old Roger Chillingworth at that moment of his ecstasy, he would have had no need to ask how Satan comports himself when a precious human soul is lost to heaven and went into his kingdom. But what distinguished the physician's ecstasy from Satan's was the tr trait of wonder in it. So we don't get a picture of it, but we're to suppose that what he saw on his breast was the A. Okay. Why? What's going on here in this exchange? What's the issue between Chillingworth and Dimsdale and this, ex this exchange about um, whether um, Chillingworth can cure Dimsdale if Dimsdale isn't completely honest about his sin? If he's holding anything back, Chillingworth is saying, I can't cure you. But doesn't he have an agenda? Chillingsworth has an agenda which is not going to serve his soul, uh, minister, Kimsdale. You know, he, he has an agenda, and it's like he knows that there's uh, Chillingsworth. I mean, Kimsdale uh, knows that it, he's not he's not looking out for his best interest. 
it, it sounds like he cares for this man's soul, but it, it isn't. Yeah. It's a manipulation. Chillingsworth um, wants a confession. Sorry? Chillingsworth wants a confession. Yeah. Yes. Wait, let's hold on. I want to be really clear. Chillingworth doesn't know at this point that Dimsdale's the father of Hester. He, he doesn't know. So what's going on in this exchange that I'm looking at right here is before that. What's going on between them is a theological matter. Um, Chillingworth is a physician. He's a modern. Except he, he stands on the verge of modernity and an ancient world because he's saying um, the body is but a sign of the soul. So if there's, if there's a disease in the body, it's a sign that something wrong in the soul. That's that allegorical cast of mind. Um, but he's a physician. He's not a minister. And he's a product of modern sciences. So he believes he can cure the body. But behind that is the belief that he can't do it unless he gets to the soul. So he's probing him. Now when he says, you have to let me know, or ask, have you let me know everything? And Dimsdale then questions him whether or not that's right or not. Um, Chillingworth continues his argument and says yes. It's at that point that Dimsdale becomes outraged. And he says, if it's true, there's only one physician and I leave my, hand, my, my life in his hand. I, what I'm asking here is what's the issue there thematically in the book? Because it's real. It goes to confession, but it also goes to, some, it goes to healing. What's the problem theologically? Because there's an issue of theology right here. It's pretty serious for the whole book. Dimsdale's hiding his sin. Can you wait a second? <laughs> Give it a second. What's going on, you guys? Come on. When Christ came um, and said to that group, aware of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, which is easier, to cure this man or forgive his sins, remember? Because it was clear in his mind that he could do both. And they were outraged and they took what he said as a blasphemy. Why? So God can forgive sin, right? Say it louder, I don't know if you're For, for God can only forgive, he's, he's the only one who can forgive sin. Yeah. So he's, he's the, is he claiming that attribute? So they were outraged at Christ because for him to say that, they understood to mean he was God, that he was claiming to be God. So for him to say which is easier, because we and he does both. But only God, only only God for now. Here's Puritans who are reading Scripture. They're turning against. I mean, they've rejected a Catholic world. I don't want to go there, but you know, it's it's in the background here, but. Is everybody clear? Chillingworth is saying, I can't cure you unless I know everything about you. And so he wants to go into his soul, and Dimsdale gets angry because he's saying, nobody can go there except the physician. See, to me, when I was reading this, it almost seemed like Chillingsworth, without faith, was trying to be God, um, act as Did if, you say out face? What did with, without faith. Oh, without faith, yeah. Without sorry. faith. Right was trying to be God through his intellect, through his knowledge, through his whatever. Right. I can do this. I can right. have that power. Right. And that's when Dimsdale said right. no. Right. That's the extension. Christ said, which is it easier to do, to, you know, to heal or forgive sins. They were outraged because only God could do that, and he could. So for anybody to claim to do this, 
means he's claiming the powers of God. And Dimsdale is outraged that any man would make that claim. So there's a real theological issue. And wh what it does for me at this point, because we're, we're towards the middle of the book and getting close to its crisis, Dimsdale's going to ascend the scaffolding. You know, he's going he's to take on the sin, even though he's going to do it in hiding. So we're touching, we're getting to the depth of the issues here. And one of them is, what happens when you can't confess? Or, or in the act of confession, according to a Catholic view, you're absolved of your sins, you're forgiven. They're gone. Dimsdale is making clear that people are going to carry these sins till the final day. They will never get rid of them. That only God can do that. And there's no, anybody acting in the person of God, in a, in a priest, in a confession, healing. So that's gone. People have got to bear these sins till the end days. Um, they can talk with them, you know, sympathetically. I mean, they're going to go to Hester and so there's a serious crisis here, and I, just, I think Sue's right on that for, for um, and think about the modern scientists, the modern doctors, because what we've done in that ancient day, I mean, that's it, a platonic, by the way, that's, that's the Platonism in the Protestant world, I really believe. The belief was that the source of all things was the soul, so if there was some problem with the body, it was a manifestation, a sign of something wrong with the soul. So cure the body and you're, you're actually answering the soul. In the modern world, we've absolutely reversed that. Doctors today look at the body and treat it as if it weren't connected to the soul. Is it because we're in a dichotomy. You know, ministers do what they do and doctors do what they do and there's just no connection in our world. It's, you know, doctors, what doctor is going to play a minister or a priest to a patient when he comes and says, I can't walk or there's a problem in my back or, you know. Or and, and Chillingsworth is in this exalted position because he is both the scientist of modern medicine in Europe, but by living in the woods with the Native Americans, he knows all the herbs and the roots and knows all these natural cures. And so he's exalted within this community because he knows both and knows how to fix it. Yeah. yeah. Very nice. Yeah. So there's a, a serious theological conflict. I mean, it's pitched right here between a minister and a physician. It's really a pitch. It's a, we're getting to the root of a theological matter here for, I just want to read this thing and then stop. In the next episode, um, Dimsdale, um, in the, he's so upset that the conflict with Chillingworth um, is, I think, got to him. And so that night he gets up and goes out um, and, and ascends the steps of the scaffold. Um, page 123. On that spot in very truth there was, and there had long been the gnawing and poisonous tooth of bodily pain without any effort of his will or power to restrain himself, he shrieked aloud an outcry. You can imagine, I mean, it's like he's letting out years of pent-up guilt and frustration. He shrieked aloud an, out, um, an outcry that went peeling through the night and was beaten back from one house to another and reverberated from the hills in the background as if a company of devils detecting so much misery and terror in it 
had made a play, a plaything of the sound and were banding it to and fro. God, it's done, he says. The whole town will awake. Except it doesn't happen. And then suddenly, down to the bottom, at another window of the same house, moreover, appeared old Mistress Hibbins, the governor's sister, also with her lamp. She sees. Um, now suddenly a light starts coming towards him and he thinks he's going to be discovered. If you've read the passage, you know it's very intense. It's like a detective novel and you're wondering. I, it's really beautifully written what Hawthorne does. It's this question of whether he's going to be discovered because he's terrified. Even though he's there, he does not want to get known. That's the irony of the moment. Um, Wilson passes below him at the top of 125. A good evening to you, Venerable Father Wilson. Come up hither, I pray you, and pass a pleasant hour with me. Chipper and, you know, pleasant and sociable. Good heavens, had Mr. Dimsdale actually spoken. For one instant he believed that these words had passed his lips, but they were uttered only with his imagination. You get this sense that this hypertension, he's got, it's a feverish. I mean, imagine if you're carrying this guilt, this sin, you know the world doesn't know it. You think the world should, but you can't risk doing it because your life is going to be ruined and moreover you're going to damage the community because the whole community puts such faith in you. Um, he passes by and then Hester comes along 126 and he asks Hester and Pearl to come up. 126, come up hither Hester, thou and little Pearl. Minister, whispered little Pearl, what would thou say child, asked Mr. Dimdale. Would thou stand here with mother and me tomorrow, noontide inquire? Children always manage to go right to the heart. Whenever there are problems, if problems are quarreling, kids are going to feel it. There's no way to hide it. You know, they're so sensitive. Nay, not so, my little pearl, answered the minister. For with new energy of the moment, all the dread of public exposure that had so long been the anguish of his life had returned upon him, and he was already trembling at the conjunction in which with a strange joy, nevertheless, he now found himself. Because this is the first time he's been able to be with his own daughter. And with Pearl as, as his wife. He now found himself, not so, my child, I will indeed stand with thy mother in thee one other day, but not today. Moment longer, my child, said he, but wilt thou tomorrow to take my hand, mother? She's so good. Not then, Pearl, said the minister, but another time. And what other time? <laughs> it's, I, mean, it's, it's, I mean, isn't this a wonderful depiction? Because kids are like this. They're just not going to stop. At the great judgment day, whispered the minister, and strangely enough, the sense that he was a professional teacher of the truth impelled him to answer the child so. Then and there, before the judgment seat, thy mother and thou and I must stand together, but the daylight of this world shall not see our meaning. Pearl laughed again. Let me just stop. Um, it's, a, um, it's interesting, it's Pearl who's going to see Chillingworth at this one. She's the one who sees it. A meteor comes at the sky, Dimsdale's focus is upward, and here's that, that technique of what I've called multiple possibilities again, because um, people are going to know about it and are going to interpret it differently. And if you've been reading, even in the Dimsdale-Chillingworth ch chapter, there were different points of view on who Chillingworth was or what a condition was. I just want to spend one more minute on that before we leave. Why does Hawthorne do this so often? He's going to do it with the, lay, the A on this scaffolding scene. People are going to talk about um, the A, and he's going to see it as a sign of his own adultery. It's like it's confirming what he's doing on the scaffolding. Other people are going to see it differently. 
There's going to be all these different readings. Why does, why does Hawthorne do that? We already talked about it in the opening marketplace, and I gave a certain reading. <coughs> Remember the five women, all of whom read Hester differently? Four of them are cruel. Remember, one of them wants to put a brand on her forehead, the other one wants to kill her, and the one with the baby. By the way, the one with the baby, we learn later, dies. Um, probably too tender, you know, in this tough. You've got to be tough to live here, for sure. Why does Hawthorne do that? Why would it be important for any change to take place in this world? Well, there's such conformity that showing that not everybody is going to think about something the same way is important. Yeah. Uh, here's something that isn't prescribed by the law. Um, yep. If you live in a black-white situation, how good would you get at reading subtleties or nuances or seeing different points of view? You're only, particularly if you're self-righteous or given to pride, you'd say, this is the way it is. This liturgical Nazi. <laughs> I think it's absolutely essential. If you're in a black-white world, how do you get out? It's a wonderful thing that he's doing. It's Socratic, really Socratic. He does it often. You almost can't read a chapter in which he doesn't do that in some form or another. I mean, what it's got to do is leave you with questions. Which is it? Which was it? You know, or, or what, what are we learning about it? But, but you remember the cave. You're not going to get out so long as you don't question. So anybody reading this, it's, if they're reading it seriously, has got to come to a point to say, which is it? Which one? Or why? Or what's he doing? Or, and how will the black and white people see it? Um, all of the women in the beginning were uniform in their reading. I mean, they were all nasty except the one. She was tender and kind, but remember, that's why I read it as narrows the way, you know, that, that you've got a whole community of seeing things, but one thing they lack is a charity. If they had better hearts, they, what they would have seen would have been different. So, um, so the, the, this chapter ends with a description of this meteor and the various interpretations people gave it. Um, so there are a number of things happening now that suggest something's subtly happening. And we know we're moving towards a crisis because Hester's going to meet with Dimsdale and confess. Um, I don't want to give much away, but I'll give one thing away because <coughs> once she lets Dimsdale know that um, Chillingworth is her husband and she kept it secret, his response is, you committed an awful sin, I will not forgive you. <laughs> he changes, but it's, I mean, it's, you know, it's, I, I, it's, it's so appropriate, so appropriate. Anyway, that's where we're going. The two are going to meet. Read that, that forest chapter closely because a lot is going on in the forest. And, and what happens afterwards, because there's a, there's a change that's affected in Dimsdale that's not accidental. And we have to talk about it, what he does next, right when he leaves the forest. And then we're going towards the final chapter of the inaugural, or the next to the last chapter, the inaugural address, where a new man is going to ascend um, or speak from his pulpit, an inaugura inauguration, a new day, and his speech is going to overwhelm the townspeople. And, um, and then what he does afterwards changes the book. And I can't tell you because you've got to find out because that's going to be our question. 
Does he change this world? Is there something he brings to this Protestant, Puritan beginning, this Calvinistic world? Is there something that he brings that helps change it? If so, what is it? Okay. Hmm? Key. Chillingsworth? No, Timsdale. Timsdale. And if any of you don't have anything to do over Christmas, read Moby Dick. Go ahead. We're going to read Death in the Cathedral. Right. And then Brothers Karamazov. <coughs> no changes in nothing. No, no, yeah. There are two books in there. There's space in between. I understand. Yeah, I, I got that. I oh, be still, the two of you. So send a... Yeah, here, I will. Wait, here, here's what email I'm going to, actually, I'm, here's what I'm going to do. It's um, when we do Elliot's um, Death in the Cathedral, um, we're going to do Elliot's The Wasteland. It's a short poem. It's, oh, okay. The, the Wasteland and Proof Rock were looked at as the watershed poems of the 20th century. Elliot changed the literary world with those two poems, Proof Rock and Wasteland. And I've decided to do Wasteland because it's modern and we're doing Elliot and Murdering the Cathedral was pretty short, but it would be a, it would be good for you to experience a, a difficult. Um, at, or a, this is my penance for leaving. No, <laughs> no. no. It'll be a lent, though. What's the word? I, lyric. It's a it's a difficult lyric, and it changes the lyric tradition. It changes the lyric tradition, and, and you know I can't let you go without making your life harder, so we're going to do the wasteland. They just have warned us to download books because it's harder to download stuff than your wife is. Occasionally Anyway, that's it. Merlin Cathedral, we'll do Elliot's uh, the Wasteland when we do it, and then we'll do Brothers. And then I just have to ask you if we just part our ways and go, or if there's something you want to do, or whatever you want to do. We can stop. We can stop. Now, I've said this before. You, I, you, you all cannot... You cannot have any doubts about how much I admire what you guys have been doing. Pretty amazing to have stuck this out. So all of you have a good Christmas, even if there are difficulties and burdens. Um, I, I, I bless everybody, hope everybody to bring a spirit of rejoicing, whatever the difficulties. Let it be so for all of us, okay? And Sue, you have a really safe trip. <laughs>